This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by one of my most favorite colleagues, Ted Olson, who is our editorial director. Or head. Yeah, uh, no, no, that's right. Editorial director. That's right. All right. Yeah. Editorial no, director. Editorial director. Yeah. It's, I've had a lot of titles, but they're that's my new one. So there you go. Okay. Cool. Hi, Ted. Hello. It's nice to sit in for Mark. Agreed. Sorry, Mark. Didn't mean to diss you right there. Anyway, Ted, who is also joining us today? We are joined by Chelsea Langston Bombino. She is the Director of Strategic Engagement for the Institutional Religious Freedom Alliance at the Center for Public Justice. Center for Public Justice, an organization that CT has has long uh, used as a resource, has been dear friends with. Institutional Religious Freedom Alliance uh, is a little bit more new and, and uh, a really good organization. It's great to have Chelsea uh, with us. We haven't, haven't had her before. So thanks, Chelsea. Thanks for inviting me. It's really exciting to be able to join you guys. I listen, so it feels weird being here in the conversation, not just sitting in my car <laughs> being in the conversation. Chelsea, can you give us the two or three sentence version of what you guys do? Sure. So the Center for Public Justice is a Christian nonpartisan civic education and public policy organization really dedicated to equipping citizens to understand God's good purposes for political community and government. And the work I specifically do is helping to advance religious freedom for all faith-based organizations of all faiths, including empowering faith-based organizations to kind of own that ability to do that for themselves through advancing their faith-based mission in every aspect of their lives. Cool. Thanks for the little summary. And I think it will become clear to our listeners in just a couple seconds why we brought you on. So let's get into our topic this week. Three Texas churches are suing the Federal Emergency Management Agency, otherwise known as FEMA, because the agency doesn't provide houses of worship with flood relief funds. Two of the Houston area churches flooded while the other one lost its roof. Despite this destruction, one of the flooded churches has offered food, clothing, and shelter to evacuees since the storm. And in their lawsuit, the churches argued this, quote, time is of the essence with respect to the subject matter of the church's claim. Mold will not wait for litigation process to spread through the church's buildings. Storm and flood debris will not stop rotting while the government processes their claims. Those affected have 30 days to file claims for FEMA funds. Several days after the lawsuit was filed, President Trump expressed his support for the churches, tweeting, Churches in Texas should be entitled to reimbursement from FEMA relief funds for helping victims of Hurricane Harvey, just like others. This week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss what's at stake with regards to religious freedom, church-state relations, and neighbor love as this court case continues. Before we get into our discussion, um, I just want to take the time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, our magazine. We thought we would talk about October's cover story because Ted Olson actually wrote it. So what's it about? Well, it's a two-part cover story looking at changes at iconic Bible ministries. Uh, so we look at uh, Awana uh, and uh, Bible Study Fellowship. Uh, you know, Bible Study Fellowship is 
really had very little uh, written about it in terms of media coverage. It's huge, but we offer one of the first kind of inside looks at, at BSF. My part was on Awana, a uh, children's ministry that is uh, massive, and I've been a part. I was a part of it as a kid. You were a part of with Timothy Award winner Morgan Lee, uh, whose name is engraved. Timothy only goes to sixth grade. It's citation. Award oh, winner. pardon me, citation award. Thank Even you. bigger. Whatever got your name engraved in the Awana headquarters. Both organizations are undergoing some changes kind of to uh, to broaden their reach, which means uh, looking at some of uh, what have been their kind of core values over time. So reconsidering some of the main things. For Awana, it, it was competition, looking uh, looking afresh at some of the, uh, the ways in which their competitive aspects may undermine some of the outreach uh, efforts they're trying to do and what they're doing about that. So last week I had a meeting with Gabe Lyons, who some people know from Q Ideas. And he was talking about his idea when he lived in New York City because he wanted to bring Awana to New York City. Nice. He was like, did you do Awana Olympics? And I was like, I haven't thought about Awana Olympics in so long. But I did. And I yeah. cared a lot about it when I did it. Absolutely. We should have a CT Awana games where we have beanbag, we throw beanbags at uh, bowling pins. And, and that would just be, we could do that instead of game lunch one day. Okay, I'm here for the throwback. All right. So if you like nerding out on Awana, apparently it's become clear to me that Ted and I should just do a, an Awana themed episode when his article comes out, because I think we're going to lose everyone who did not do Awana in a matter of moments. But you can do that by becoming a subscriber to Christianity today by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. In addition to becoming a subscriber, you also get a download that contains mine, Mark's, and our other podcast co-host, Richard Clark's favorite articles from the past couple years. Again, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, now let's get back to the show. Ted, as you may recall, oftentimes when we kick off these conversations, we have what we call a gut check, which is when we just kind of, you know, share how we, how the news made us feel. Did you have any emotional reaction to hearing this news? Uh, I did. And I, we will get into that a little bit with, with Chelsea. But my uh, first reaction was, man, this again? Like, do we do, we do this every disaster? CT runs an article on uh, churches and FEMA, and I, I feel like over the years, my 22 years at CT, I've covered so many, uh, so many of these controversies, and it seems like they get fixed, but they get only fixed for that one natural disaster. So my response was kind of like, oh, did we not, have we not fixed this already? That was kind of my gut. My gut check is just that I feel like I didn't know enough about FEMA to be surprised or to not be surprised. Yeah, there you go. I guess I kind of was like, is FEMA for people? Like, for people that, like, for organizations? I don't know. But I've also never lived in a disaster area, so. Yeah, you know, like, forget disaster. Like, we had bad rains uh, a couple years ago, and so my wife and I got a FEMA loan, and oh, so okay. I, I have... And we got some FEMA relief just for, you know, kind of a neighborhood flooding thing. And so, yeah, so I, in the last five years or so, got a lot more familiar with FEMA and how to apply for grants and loans through that group. So this is this is personally interesting to me. All right. So Chelsea, Ted already kind of suggested that he wants to tap on some of the history. But before we get into the history, what's the argument that these churches are making to the court right now? Yeah. So the argument is really simple. And it's an argument that is being made by these churches in this specific context. But it's been made by uh, an organization called Agadath Israel and the Rockaways. 
during Hurricane Sandy. It's not just for Christian organizations. I think that's the important thing to say. The argument is that FEMA is violating the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, particularly uh, as we've seen it interpreted in the 7-2 decision of Trinity Lutheran, which was just released by the court this June, which said very, very clearly that this puts them to a choice between being a church and receiving a government benefit. That's a quote from Trinity Lutheran. So the idea is that general governmental safety and health benefits in Trinity Lutheran, it was the case of a preschool um, uh, applying for a government grant to make sure their playgrounds were safe. And the only reason they were excluded was because of their religious status. If they had been in the exact same position as a secular preschool, they wouldn't have been excluded. And the court said that that was wrong. And that's pretty much what's going on here. It's a little bit more complicated because churches would be applying for rebuilding funds that would go toward rebuilding their entire infrastructure, possibly, or rebuilding what was damaged, which might be uh, rebuilding a sanctuary, which could be used for, obviously, for religious purposes. Um, but the idea here, and uh, I say this having been someone who has worked in the broader secular nonprofit sector, I've worked for a state nonprofit association. The idea here is that this benefit is available. You can apply if you are a nonprofit organization. So in Hurricane Sandy, uh, organizations that received FEMA funds were organizations that were highly specific, like octopus research organizations and botanical gardens. Zoos can apply. Community centers can apply. And the argument that the Beckett, Beckett Law makes, which is a nonprofit law firm that represents religious liberty cases, is that in this case, but for these churches' religious status, if they were out there doing exactly what they're doing because of their religion, but they were just out there doing it for a secular purpose, they would be allowed to apply so that this is government discrimination of religion and therefore it's a violation of the First Amendment's free exercise clause. And what specifically is at issue? Is it a law on the books? Is it like yeah. one bureaucrat's uh, decision? And what? So the law says... So it's a little complicated. Uh, the Stafford Act is the legislation here. And the Stafford Act does not say that houses of worship cannot apply for FEMA funding. FEMA has regulations that make clear that if you are a religious organization and more than 50% of the time or space is used for religious purposes, you're automatically exempt, you cannot apply for this funding. So it's a regulation. It's not a law. Uh, in fact, efforts are being led by Orthodox Union, which is an association of Orthodox Jewish congregations and supported by a diversity of religious groups to pass a law that would make it clear that FEMA cannot discriminate against houses of worship for rebuilding and restoring the community to its original purposes and original well-being. But this is the judicial efforts that are happening. Legislative efforts have thus far been unsuccessful. Uh, it passed the House, I believe, in 2013, but the Senate failed to pick it up, and it was reintroduced in 2015. So right now, there's a possibility that Congress could do something. There's a possibility that the Trump administration, and we've seen Jamie Johnson, who's the director of FEMA's faith-based offices, uh, make positive statements to that end that the Trump administration could intervene here and allow uh, houses of worship to apply for rebuilding grants along with the rest of the nonprofit sector. And uh, we also could see judicial action. So I think that this is what we're talking right now right now is the judicial, but there's um, actions going on in the legislative and executive branches as well that could impact 
what happens with churches or mosques or synagogues or other houses of worship. In that 2013 vote, I mean, the House, it was it was massive. It was uh, 354 to 72. It was uh, bipartisan. It was, yeah, it was very bipartisan. bipartisan. So I guess the one question is like, so if it's so overwhelming, do we know why it stalled out in the Senate? Like what's, what's holding it back? Yeah. So part of it is just getting Congress's attention. A lot of it comes down to politics. Unless there's a disaster, this isn't necessarily the issue that's on everyone's mind, right? Like I had to go back and read up on all of the details of the FEMA regulations. So part of it is just having the political momentum. There is some positive bipartisan support. It's just a matter of getting the momentum to see this through, which I think is just challenging with two legislative bodies that are uh, very much in a crunch in D.C. to do a lot of things that maybe haven't happened yet. And this was on no one's radar, really, except the specialists until Hurricane Harvey happened. So potentially, you know, I'd love to see the broader nonprofit community come out and support this issue. And that's what's so great about America. And, you know, here, if you're a nonprofit, you can be a church or an atheist organization. You can be a pacifist organization or a gun rights organization. So I think that the nonprofit community should come out and say, we don't all have to agree on our missions. We live in a diverse society. We need diverse organizations to meet the needs of that society. And it seems blatantly unfair to the 350,000 congregations that make up houses of worship in this country that also contribute economically to their communities, that serve at often as places where people visit for architecture, art, that I think 80%, 7% of all congregation services are directed outward into their community and not just for their own members. So it's pretty amazing the kind of uh, social hub that a church functions as. There's been a lot of really strong social science evidence to that point from Ram Kanan, uh, economically from Brian Grimm. And so it would just be really great if legislatively this was supported so that we're not in a situation again uh, in another four years where we're looking for an executive action. Chelsea, let me just clarify here. So if you're a Christian nonprofit you're gonna you're eligible to get funds from FEMA right now or a religious nonprofit. It's only when you become a house of worship that you lose the ability to apply for funds. It's a fine line. So um, religious nonprofits include churches, right? So if you're a religious nonprofit that primarily serves the community, then yes. But if you're a religious nonprofit, if you're a church, if you're a house of worship that primarily uses your space to serve co-religionists that to serve your members, Um, Even if you do other things in the community, if it's not over half of what you do, then you're not eligible. So probably if you're a school that is only open to members of your denomination and your school is heavily focused on religious instruction, you would have trouble rebuilding your school with FEMA money. I believe so. Um, I know there are, you know, there are cases out there. Um, What we'd love to see is we'd love to see this be found in favor of these churches uh, who ironically have actually been damaged themselves uh, in part. The churches that... uh, FEMA doesn't want to help are actually helping FEMA stage shelters and feed people. And the FEMA director has even said that churches are, they couldn't do what they're doing without churches. It's been in, you know, USA Today and the Atlantic. And- church, church is going to church. Yeah. <laughs> whether they whether they can rebuild with government funds or not, churches are going to go out and and, and help. And, and uh, probably most of these are, uh, are going to rebuild. It's just a question of whether these uh, churches have to use uh, congregational funds to do it. Uh, or whether that that congregational funds can go towards uh, helping the community, I assume. And I I would just add to that. So I think there's 
I think there's probably listeners out there that might be thinking, well, if my church, if this happened in my church, my church wouldn't want to take government funding because I don't want those entanglements. I don't want anything to do with government funding. And I think that where my organization is coming from and the way I see it, I actually think that's fine. But there's kind of a difference to be made principally between saying like my individual church does not choose to apply for government funding and saying that all other houses of worship out there should be discriminated against solely based on their religion when they might have different kind of uh, animating beliefs about whether or not they want to partner with government in that way. And also they might just be very underprivileged churches. So the little I've found out about the churches that have been struck the hardest and are in this lawsuit. Uh, They're relatively young churches. They've had really quick growth. They have relatively small memberships. We're not talking about 2,000 person, 10,000 person mega churches. And, you know, not all churches are in an economic position to be able to rebuild. So I think that there are two different conversations to be had. One is, should government discriminate against houses of worship? And it's almost ironic because the houses of worship are often on the ground doing the most work. And then the second question is, should your individual church or would you make the same decision to take government funding? But I don't think we should say the two have to result in the same answer for churches. We've been talking about nonprofits. Does the business community, are they also eligible to get FEMA grants? Yes. Uh, I think the process is different. I think it's easy to think about FEMA uh, as serving mostly individuals. Like you, like you said, Morgan, like that's the way that the media often covers it. That's why I think what you guys are doing is so unique because you're helping your readership think institutionally about these issues. So like restoring a community is not going to just be about restoring individuals in their homes, which is, is very important. But to actually restore a community, you have to restore the institutions and, and in which that community lives their lives. So that would include small businesses. It would include nonprofits. It would include community centers and houses of worship. And I don't know all the details about how small business grants work, but I do know that the way the process works for these churches is that if we're talking about essential services they're providing, but not critical services, there's a process by which they would, if they're allowed to, apply through the SBA. So I'm sure the SBA partners with FEMA in that role, and it gets pretty um, granular and technical how that exactly works. Right. Yeah. The SBA loan process is a little bit more open than the than the FEMA grant process, from, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So obviously, this lawsuit's targeting FEMA. Uh, FEMA is going to, I don't know if they have already filed a, a response brief, but what is the FEMA argument uh, kind of defending the existing uh, Baffert Act? Yeah. So they would actually, and I actually don't know if they're going to make this argument. I would like to be optimistic and hope that FEMA is going to kind of do what Trump might have indicated that they might do, which is support these churches. But Organizations like uh, the Baptist Joint Community or Americans United for the Separation of Church and State would make arguments to the extent that this is a violation of the separation of church and state. There was a quote from back in 2013, I think from the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, or maybe from the Baptist Joint Committee that said, you know, like government didn't give you money to build your church, like government shouldn't give you money to rebuild your church. Just this like very basic idea that like government should not be in the business of building churches, even if it's after disaster, even if that's hard to swallow, even if they have kind of empathy for the situation, that that's just not government's role. That's their kind of argument. I, I do I do want to talk a little bit about the recent Supreme Court case, because I think if we were talking about uh, some state funds, uh, when we have these things called Blaine amendments in various state constitutions that have uh, barred 
uh, government funds from going to any kind of religious organization, you know, any church. Sectarian. Yeah, sectarian organization. That there would be a little bit, those those are kind of higher church-state uh, funding rules. If we were talking about a state rule, I mean, what is... What is kind of the lay of the land now in this, uh, you know, post-Supreme Court uh, decision that just came out this year? Are Blaine amendments still legal? I mean, are... are, are... They are, yeah. I believe. So th- they've kind of left that question for another day, is my understanding. Very complex, the Trinity Lutheran case. But basically, 100, 115 years ago, when Blaine amendments were passed, most public schools were not secular. As, maybe that's not the right word, but they were not secular as they are now. They were Protestant, uh, and religion was infused into the classroom and the curriculum. And when there started to be heavy waves of Catholic migration through Ireland um, and other parts of Europe, groups of Catholics wanted to have their own schools to reflect their own faith practices, and they didn't want to send their children to Protestant public schools. So states around the country, I believe about 20 of them, passed these Blaine Amendments, which basically just said no government funding can go for quote unquote, like sectarian entities. Sectarian was a kind of code word for Catholic. So these Blaine Amendments were completely created to discriminate against Catholic institutions and educational institutions in particular. And unfortunately, they've stayed on the books because they're not just laws and they're amendments to state constitutions, which are more difficult to repeal. And um, in Missouri, a school uh, called Trinity Lutheran through Trinity Lutheran Church applied for just a general public safety grant. It was a grant to make sure kids didn't get scraped up knees. And it was for the resurfacing of playgrounds to make sure schools could have, I think, recycled tires on their playgrounds, which were safer for children than gravel. And so they went through a competitive process. The church preschool was, I believe, fifth in the application process. The quality of their application was fifth out of 44 applications. So they, on their own merit, not because of their faith or lack of faith, but because they had one of the best applications, they should have qualified for the grant to resurface their playground. And they didn't because of this Blaine Amendment. And so it made its way all the way through the Supreme Court. And in a seven to two decision, the very basic gist of it is that uh, the court agreed that this was religious discrimination, that an an entity cannot be categorically exempt when it is otherwise eligible because only because of its religious identity. What the court did not take up, which is what we see kind of in this new case with the churches in, in Texas, is the question of whether the government has to use funds for things that are are potentially more like explicitly religious. So in the Trinity Lutheran case, we were talking about resurfacing a playground. That playground wasn't used to preach sermons on generally. It was used for children to play on. So the court didn't take a position on the question of government funds being used for something that was as explicitly religious as potentially rebuilding a sanctuary, for example. Um, So that's where there's some disagreement among kind of religious freedom scholars about what might happen. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. 
how did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Chelsea, I want to go back to that quote that you had paraphrased earlier um, about the how the fact that the you know the government doesn't give funds to build churches. I guess there's just a part of me that seems really confused about why government money would be allowed to rebuild churches. Like it seems obvious that the government would not be giving money to establish religious, you know, mosques, synagogues, or churches. So, so why in this case? Would it somehow be permissible after a disaster if they weren't going to do that beforehand? Right. Well, they don't do it beforehand because like if the government is not saying like we are going to build, we have decided that we are Lutheran and we're going to build Lutheran churches, that would be religious preference. That would be an, a violation of the establishment clause. But here the government is saying, and I'm sure um, there are arguments to be made that government and FEMA you know, I don't believe them, but I know they're out there that FEMA shouldn't be doing this kind of work at all. Um, but FEMA has a program that allows nonprofits of various viewpoints, right? So various kind of animating belief systems to apply for getting funding to rebuild. And the question then is you can have this diversity of nonprofits with diversity of ideologies, of missions, of service areas, of viewpoints, but the only viewpoint that's not accepted is a religious viewpoint. And that's the question that's kind of on the table here. So it's not that the government is saying, I'm going to build a Seventh-day Adventist church and and I because I prefer Seventh-day Adventist churches over Baptist churches. But it's, it's, the, it's saying that the purpose of this FEMA grant program is to restore the community to how it was before the disaster. And if that program is open to every other kind of civil society organization in that community, but churches, then you're actually doing the community a disservice. Um, if you are saying everyone can apply, all the secular community centers, all of the research organizations, all of the libraries and museums, but the Muslim uh, community center and the Assemblies of God church cannot apply, then the community is actually not being restored. And the groups that are being targeted are the religious houses of worship. So let's say I wanted to—I can't file an amicus brief on behalf of these churches, but, you know, on the legislative front, I could probably call my congressperson and uh, say, hey, you know, can you try to push uh, push that bill uh, back into service? Are there any, you know, cautions? I, I You know, I mean, there's ways to kind of—I uh, guess one concern I have is, is this view of uh, Christians mobilizing when on religious freedom. They're most prone to do it when it's something that really benefits Christians disproportionately. Um, mm-hmm. Is there are there ways for us to do this as a public witness rather than as a hey we want we want as much money as we can get uh, approach? Yeah, I, I really think so, and that's really my prayer. Um, I think that's really interesting that one of the organizations that has been the most consistently involved in doing this work 
is Orthodox Union, which is an Orthodox association of Jewish congregations. The bill that you're actually referring to is called the Federal Disaster Assistance Nonprofit Fairness Act. Um, and I would just say that we ought to be, I think, as Christians, seeking out how do we, CPJ says this really well, so I'm, I'm just taking from my colleagues at CPJ, but we talk about how do we love our very different neighbor through politics that that doesn't just mean, of course, you know, serving everyone of all religions when a disaster happens and providing direct service. Of course, we are called to do that. But we're also called to love our neighbor in diverse political communities by saying, I would be, I mean, I would be more than welcome, happy to come on this program and make the same defense for a mosque or a temple or a synagogue as I would for a Christian church of my own denomination. And I think it's very, very important in this day and age, especially among young people, even young Christians, when we see that religious freedom has kind of been um, tainted and the idea that that religious freedom might be synonymous with privileging your own faith or even, you know, intolerance and bigotry, it's so important to say, like, religious freedom here is connected to uh, upholding diversity of religious organizations and secular nonprofits and communities after a disaster. And that we should not be speaking out, I don't think, just because these are churches. I think that we should be speaking out. And that's why I've tried to pull some examples of other faith-based organizations. I believe there was a, a reformed synagogue that was, um, it's not part of this lawsuit, but that was um, harmed in Texas. And I'm sure there are, are diverse houses of worship in Florida as well that will need to seek out this kind of help. And so I really hope that we all kind of carefully think and prayerfully think about not just like, would my church want to take disaster relief or not, but like, how can I love my neighbor that might be very different than me, that might be of a different faith, and maybe their congregation wouldn't have the funds to rebuild itself, and wouldn't I want them to be restored to their original ability to function, to serve their communities, to just worship this very basic thing that we're all trying to do? Yeah, I wonder if... <laughs> The tricky thing for me would be, I mean, I could really see a church uh, rallying around, you know, rebuilding their own church and say, okay, we were knocked down, but, you know, we can do, you know, the 21st century of a barn raising and go help to put up drywall <laughs> in our church and take out all the moldy uh, stuff that got, you know, flooded. I would have a hard time mobilizing uh, my congregation or uh, other congregations near me to go do that to the local mosque uh, or the local Hindu center, especially because they'd be concerned like, well, I'm building a temple to a false religion, uh, you know, that would be a problem. I mean, it, you get into that same question that you were raising earlier about, is my church endorsing something by helping people rebuild? It's the same. It's a similar question, too, is the government endorsing something uh, by helping them rebuild? I, 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 do you know of churches that are helping non-Christian houses of worship rebuild in times of, uh, in times of natural disaster? Oh, anecdotally, yes. I do know of actually some Muslim faith communities that have flocked to the aid of churches in times of natural disaster, um, in times of tragedy. And I, I do think that we see that more and more in this country. Uh, and of course, if someone's individual conscience, uh, that's not all right, that's, that's fine. But I think the idea that like government is endorsing a viewpoint or religion by giving equal access to all organizations. I don't think that's completely right because then, you know, there are organizations I'm sure that have gotten FEMA funds uh, that I would personally disagree with their mission. I don't view that as government endorsing them over another organization. I just view that as government providing 
a public safety benefit. So, you know, every time a fire truck goes and, you know, honestly, if a fire truck, if there was a fire at an organization I deeply disagreed with, I would want the fire truck to go and save the people in that organization. And I don't think that's government endorsement of one viewpoint or religion over another. One last question that I actually feel like I should have probably asked at the beginning. So one thing that's been talked about, and we mentioned in the intro, is that you have 30 days to file to apply for this money to begin with. So when we say apply, what is the process that we are looking into from there? That's a good question, uh, Morgan. And I think it's pretty technical. Basically, the reason that Beckett has filed this lawsuit and asked for this basically like rushed decision is because right now churches are ineligible to apply. So if basically if you're ineligible to apply and the 30 days comes and goes and you didn't apply because you weren't eligible, so these churches can't apply right now. That's why they've they've asked for a rushed decision because basically the churches will have a very tight turnaround even if this is heard and it's ruled in their favor to then turn around and apply before I think it's like September 26th is the last day. The only other option if that doesn't happen would be retroactive, which is not, I guess, a out of the realm of possibility, but then there'd have to be kind of special guidance either from FEMA deciding to change its decision or the court to say, no, we're going to actually open it up and give a grace period because these churches didn't have and houses of worship didn't have a chance to apply um, because they were literally not allowed to apply. Uh, Yeah, I guess the only reason I was asking that is because from what I understood, FEMA doesn't have unlimited money. And so I didn't know. And that's the other, I mean, that's a great point. Um, yeah, so there's a, there isn't unlimited funds, right? Like, so if they are not able to apply and all those funds are used, um, that would seem to again, you know, doubly disadvantage houses of worship because when they, you know, if they are able to apply in the future, uh, I guess there would be a question of whether or not the funds would still be there. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea, for this interesting and super informational discussion with us. I can. Say for myself, Ted may have seen this carnival come to town before, but I have not. So this was interesting to learn through all of this. As always, people can react to us on Twitter or on Facebook. We're on Twitter at CT Podcast. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CT Podcast. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week. Ted, would you like to start out? Sure. Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, is uh, Talk Like a Pirate Day, and I love Talk Like a Pirate Day. I am just a huge fan of uh, pirate music in its various forms, and so I listen to a lot of pirate music, both on Talk Like a Pirate Day and and generally for the whole week. Uh, My board gaming group uh, has uh, uh, collected uh, a dozen or so pirate-themed games. We'll be playing uh, pirate-themed games this weekend, and I will be... uh, uh, resisting the temptation to talk like a pirate to the CT staff all day and just kind of quietly uh, wearing my eye patch and thinking pirate <laughs> things to myself. That's kind of disappointing, actually. Uh, you might get an R or two from me. We'll see. Okay. Sounds good. Are you online, Ted? Uh, ahoy. I, I am. Uh, I'm at Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E. Yeah. Chelsea? So I am really looking forward this week to my dad coming to visit. And he is someone who loves Home Depot, but I didn't think that coming to visit me in Metro DC would mean that he would make a whole trip out of 
tracking all of the Home Depots within a 30-mile radius <laughs> nice. of my house. And he's planned wow. like a Home Depot itinerary. He was very disappointed he couldn't search for Home Depots on TripAdvisor. So I actually just get a lot of joy out of my father and uh, appreciate his love of things I couldn't care less about. All right. So tell us, like, what is it about that he, like, wants to visit these Home Depots? Like, what do they have that's different? Oh, just, like, everything. He wants to see how they're laid out differently. He wants to see if they sell hot dogs or give free coffee. He wants to see if the bathroom's in the back of the store or the front of the store. He wants to walk around and tell me about how you have to buy Teflon tape when you buy a new shower head. And uh, all of the things I would rather not do, but I really am going to look forward to it because I haven't seen my parents in quite a while. That's that's great. You know, uh, speaking of families in Home Depot, one of my favorite things about Home Depot is once a month they have this uh, uh, activity for kids where you go and like you build something there. Generally, it's minimal, like a little bit of hammering, a little bit of painting. But man, if you've got young kids, look into it. It is super fun. I don't have kids yet, but I'm pretty sure my dad has probably already researched that for his future <laughs> grandchildren. Yeah. Sure. Well, I await this American life doing an, a segment on your dad's Home Depot <laughs> obsession. Right. Cool. Are you online? I am. Uh, I'm at Chelsea L. Bombino on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and I post funny conversations I have with my dad. So Awesome. And does does Urfa have a uh, Twitter presence as well? Uh, CPJ does. CP Justice at CP Justice. My precious moment was, well, I have a decent number, but I'll just say going to the Religious Newswriter Association conference last week was a lot of fun. It is an annual conference that's full of people who write about religion, some of whom are religious, present company. And what I really like about it is it's a conference for people that are really curious about each other and about the world. So it's different than some conferences you go to where people really want to meet with the quote unquote names or have something to tell you. They are actually all really interested in listening specifically from people who are different than them, which makes it a really unique place to hang out and something that I wish we could cultivate more in other places. Yeah, back when I was more a religion news writer as opposed to uh, editor-manager, that was my favorite conference. It's just such a great uh, group of people, whether you're talking about the folks from uh, New York Times and, uh, you know, Time Magazine down to uh, more local papers that you may not know of. Uh, it's just oh, such a such a great group. You you should also say that we actually won uh, a couple mag- awards. Uh, several awards. Yeah. Yeah. We won for best magazine. And we also Jeremy Weber, who is our colleague and runs our news team, had two major stories last year go out. He wrote one cover story about India and about what Christians are up to there. And he also did a story about refugees. Um, He actually did a couple stories about refugees, but I believe the one that won was told mostly in Greece, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And kind of looking at the churches that help out along the way there. Yeah. First place. Pretty, pretty awesome. So nice to be recognized. So Indeed. I can be found online at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Well, this podcast is produced by me. It is also produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But Apple Podcasts is great because if you write us a review there, that is super helpful to us. So thank you to everyone who has written a review already. We really appreciate it. You can subscribe to Christianity Today at orderct.com slash quick to listen. And thank you so much, Ted, for coming on the show. Chelsea, it was great to have you too. Thank you. And we will see you all next week.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.